Welcome to Reconciling Grace, a program where church leaders discuss various topics from the Bible. During the discussions, there may or may not always be agreement from every panel member on every point, but there is full agreement on the fact that the way to God the Father is through the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ. That's Melody Morris giving the introduction to this episode of Reconciling Grace. We thank Melody for doing that every week. And this is Pete Vecchi, one of the associate pastors at West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene. We're glad to have you with us today. Our panel consists of, starting on my left, Vicki Cundiff. Vicki is one of the staff pastors at Countryside Church of the Nazarene in Lebanon, Ohio. Mick Wells, who is a member of Wells of Salvation Ministries. He's been such since 1980, and he is also one of the co-hosts of the Cross Connection radio program. And Steve Wilson is with us today. Steve is a graduate of United Theological Seminary in Dayton. He is also a Christian author and does several other things, such as computer game programming. And Steve is going to be taking the lead in our discussion today on the topic of Jesus' humanity. So Steve, go ahead and take it away. All right, well, Jesus' humanity is a rather big idea the church has wrestled with uh, for thousands of years now. In fact, one of our Facebook friends asked us, well, how did the church decide that Jesus was both God and man? And uh, so I just want to give a real quick rundown of some history on that from the early church. We talked in an earlier program on Jesus' humanity about how some early Christians had a hard time thinking of Jesus as human. They wanted to think of him as God only and his body more as an illusion. They were the uh, docetics. Today, we kind of swing the opposite direction where people don't want to think of Jesus as God. They'd rather see him as human only, just a good teacher that lived a long time ago. But the early church and historical Christian faith maintain that Jesus is both God and man. Still, that's a complicated idea. How can Jesus be both God and man, right? So the early church had to define exactly what they meant when they said that Jesus was both God and man. Sometimes someone would try to understand that relationship between Jesus' humanity and his godhood, and it would sound right, it would make sense, but there would be disagreement among Christians. So the church leaders or the Christian emperor would call a council to sort out the problem and give a more detailed explanation of what they meant by saying that Jesus was God and man. The first of those councils was the Council of Nicaea, which the emperor called in the year 325. At that time, uh, they described Jesus and the relationship with God as light from light, true God from true God. It's part of the Nicene Creed that they came up with. And at that council, they did say that, yes, Jesus was a man, but they didn't go into much detail about that. Um, what they were trying to establish at that council was his equality with God. See, this guy named Arius had apparently been uh, teaching that Jesus was a lesser God than God the Father. And so the church came together and said, no, actually, they're, they're equal. They're 
the same thing. Jesus is light from light, true God from true God, not any kind of lesser God. Then uh, 50-some years later, the church came together at the Council of Constantinople to clarify Jesus' humanity a little bit more. They said that Jesus had a truly human mind and soul as well as a body. He was completely human. He wasn't simply God living in a human body, but he had a human body, a human mind, and a human soul. Well, then of course the question arose, well, what does that mean? Does that mean then that Jesus has two souls and two minds? Does he have a God soul and a human soul, a God mind and a human mind living in the same body? So, guess what? Another council. So, okay, let's, let's iron that out. The Council of Ephesus in the year 431, uh, the church leaders said, Jesus did not have a God nature and a human nature, but one unified nature that is both God and man at the same time. You know, before you go on, Steve, I just want to point out, it looks like about 50 years or so passes each time between these councils. So it's not like it's like, oh, well, we missed this uh, last week, so next week we're going to come up with another thing. It's something that these things have developed over time. Right. As, as questions arose, as uh, Christians you know, kind of try to think through the faith, well, what does that mean when we say these certain things? Uh, yeah, then the church had to come back together and, and decide on, okay, what is it exactly that we're saying? The, uh, the last council I'll mention is the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451. Uh, the church put it in this kind of language. They said, Jesus is the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man. And we get this statement that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's one being, uh, kind of like we believe that God is one being, although he's three persons. Jesus is one being. He's both God and man. And that's something that we can't really understand. So we can't understand the Trinity fully. We can't understand this um, this being of Christ fully. We, we, we can't understand that. But it's important to understand that the the church, when they came together as these councils, they weren't uh, kind of making things up. They weren't saying, okay, you know, how can we be philosophical about this? How can we um, you know, say things to really confuse people? They were looking at the Scripture, and they're saying, from what we see in the Scripture, Jesus does very human things, things that only humans can do. And at the same time, he does very God things, things that only God can do. And uh, maybe in our discussion, we'll talk about some of those human things versus God things. But uh, it's kind of the brief rundown. Anyone wants to? Well, that had me curious a little bit, uh, Steve, about uh, recognizing that they were pulling the position not out of the air, but from Scripture. So Mm -hmm. I went. Uh, to look at when the scriptures actually were coalesced into what we know today. Let me focus on the New Testament, the New Testament canon. Uh, and I compared it to the dates you were talking about for these councils. Now, the what I found was that there was a bishop of Alexandria. His name was Athanasius. And uh, he wrote a letter in 
the year 367, now that's a couple decades, three or four decades after the Council of Nicaea, but that's the first, at least at this point, evidence of a record of the New Testament canon as we know it mm-hmm. that, that was formed. But the, I think the important thing is that uh, Athanasius didn't come up with that. He was really just collecting and kind of putting in one set or one list uh, um, the documents that were accepted basically in Christendom at the time these councils were meeting that was accepted as scripture. So I was thinking, okay, how did the Council of Nicaea uh, base their light from light, true God from true God on scripture? Where were the scriptures? I mean, it wasn't like a bound Bible like I brought here, but uh, the scriptures were were being coalesced through what I believe is the uh, guidance of the Holy Spirit back in that time. And, And they were drawing from uh, such uh, references as, uh, I don't know that they had chapters and verses back then either, right. but, you know, staring them in the face was what we know as Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And so I think they were really locking in on uh, scriptural truth to base their statements. And to, to jump off of that, they they definitely had the scriptures. They didn't have them uh, put together. They didn't have the the final canon um, codified, but they had them. And one of the signs of authority of scripture that they finally decided on is had to be written by an apostle or by a close associate of apostles. So we know that Mark uh, was written by a student of Peter. And so that, that was considered authoritative. It came straight from Peter. So, right, all of those scriptures, even though they weren't you know, put together as in this is the Bible, they said, well, this was written by Paul in mm-hmm. your example, Colossians. So they said this is authoritative for us. It was written by an apostle. Mm-hmm. So as we're talking about Jesus as a man and a God, I was just wondering which side of Jesus, if I can use that language, that erroneous language, uh, which side of Jesus do you most relate to, his godhood or his manhood? You know, Steve, I'd never thought about that before until you, you know, posed the question to us. And uh, as I thought about that, to me it's just both. I don't know if I could choose one or the other because he certainly is God to me, you know. But at the same time, um, the humanity side of him and knowing that I have these conversations with him and talk to him every day and every moment of the day, you know, where he's just like a companion beside me. But at the same time, he's God to me in that honor and respect and reverence. Mm-hmm. It's kind of along the same lines that I was thinking, you know, is he more God or more man? Is that how you put it? Um, how do I tend to think of him? And I say, yeah. yes, yes, that's the thing. It just kind of depends on, on the time and, and the circumstance. I think as I've uh, grown in the faith, I've gained a greater appreciation uh, for the for the package, of course. But you're asking, do I relate to Jesus more as a man or as God? I I have to say, as God now, because He came to Earth as a man, God as a man, it gives me something to connect to, a mental image, something 
to relate to, but because Jesus is God, there are special things about him that make possible my relationship with not only him, the Heavenly Father. And um, I, I think if I tend to think of him as a man, I tend to think of him in terms of my own experience on earth, which is flawed, but the scriptures clearly show uh, that Jesus lived a sinless life here, and he, uh, he could only do that because he was God. And I, I think I appreciate, if not the word relate, I appreciate him more for the God he was in human flesh. You know, that's a good way of putting it. I think I'm a lot the same way in that, because um, I think if I really needed to nail down something that said, is he God or is he man or which one do I relate to most? I think my answer might go kind of right along with what you were saying, Mick. And uh, it seems like we've just started to scratch the surface here and it's already time for us to uh, take a break for our sponsors. So let's do that. And then we'll be right back with the next half of today's episode of Reconciling Grace. And we're back with Reconciling Grace, and Steve Wilson has been leading our discussion today about the humanity of Jesus. And as I said before the break, Steve, we just started to scratch the surface, and I think you've got a whole lot more you want to talk about. Yeah. So let's let's ask the question, why did God the Son become human, become the person we know as Jesus? Why did he have to do that? Let's make sure we we understand that. If he would have been only God, he could not have died. If he would have been only God, he could not have been tempted to not do God's will. The sacrifice that he made needed to be done by someone who was tempted, as the Bible says, in every way that we are. Now, um, I don't know if you're going to get into that whole idea of what does every way mean, but the idea is he was tempted to do his own will as a human being rather than God's will. In other words, for one example, he was tempted to ask that the cup of the cross be taken away from him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't do God's will, but as a human being, he didn't want to go through all that. So it was important that he faced temptation to say that he could overcome these things so that way when he was sacrificed for our sins, he indeed was the perfect, spotless, blameless sacrifice for our sins. Well, I think God became uh, the Word made flesh, as the Scripture said, for a number of reasons, but uh, the word obedience uh, comes to mind. as, as Pete was talking about in, in the garden about the cup passing, uh, but he wanted, he said, not my will, but thine right. be done. Um, there's a scripture in, in Philippians that talks about he humbled himself by becoming obedient uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then uh, he has a strong desire to please the Father and uh, 
a scripture in, in John chapter 8, verse 29, um, where Jesus said, I do always those things that please him, capital H. So he did it clearly out of obedience uh, mm-hmm. to God the Father. Um, it's an amazing thing what he did if you, if you consider what he had, what he gave up, and what he went through for you, you and me. That is almost irresistible in terms of compelling uh, for those of us on this earth. And um, he, uh, he did that out, out of love. And, um, and I was thinking too, Romans 8.30 says, God was sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And so um, he loved us that much. So I would have to say the reason he came was to be obedient to the Father and his, his love for the human beings that he created, according to the uh, Gospel of John. It's a, a great thing to appreciate. Okay, well, if we could read Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18, I will get a little more insight on that. The word says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So as this faithful and merciful high priest, he becomes one of us to redeem us. Uh, He couldn't have uh, taken our place on the cross if he wasn't one of us. And he couldn't have saved us if he wasn't fully obedient to God. He, He couldn't have saved all of us if he wasn't the infinite God. So how does thinking of Jesus as a human help us? It says that he came to help us. So how does thinking of Jesus as a human help us? I think for me it's helped in the sense of when I go through certain things in life that I know that Jesus has gone through some of those same things. And some years ago, one of the great emotions that I was going through at the time was a feeling, a deep sense of betrayal that I felt over some things that had been happening in my life. And sometimes when you're faced with these things, sometimes you want to bury those feelings, but you have to get to that place in order to let them go that you have to bring them to Jesus. And so I'm finally ready to bring this emotion uh, to him one day, and, and just in thinking about this, and, and I know it must have been the Lord that brought this to my mind, but I remembered his own betrayal. You know, of course, Judas betrayed him terribly. You know, he walked with him for three years, and the relationship that they had, and walking, imagine that, walking with the Son of God, yet you betray him the way he did. And there were other people that betrayed him as well. And so humanly, you know, thinking about him as a human and making that connection that, you know, he has gone through the same things. But then you think of him on the cross, and, you know, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, he's always so forgiving. So you can just, 
know that he went through the same things that we have gone through uh, in life. Uh, but even further than that, as I would take it even a step further, it's not just as a human being that he was betrayed. I mean, I think that, you know, people that turn their back on God after knowing him, you know, are really betraying him as well, that he still has to continue to go through that. But that's just one example. There's there's other examples, of course, of just knowing that he's gone through things that we've gone through really helps. Mm-hmm. I, th- I would uh, piggyback on that by saying that because he was all God, he didn't have a need to come to earth to know how to relate to people. I mean, he knows us. He knows right. every molecule about us. Right. But what he did for us was give us a a God to relate to in human form. So he did it for our benefit, not so he could come and learn about us, but so we would see what he went through and have something to relate to. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, a completely unselfish motive and love from the creator God. Have you ever felt unappreciated? Just think about that. I think, Vicki, that's kind of what I was thinking about when you were talking about this is, you know, look what he has done for us. And yet we have people who just don't care. They just turn their back on him. And I know that I have felt unappreciated many, many times in my life, especially, you know, after I've done something that that was, you know, I mean, I've never done any great, great thing, but still, you know, it could be as as little as doing a really good job on something at work and and nobody, you know, seems to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And look at how much littler that is than what Jesus is not appreciated for after he gave his life for us and people just turn their backs on him. Mm -hmm. But he still loves us, doesn't he? Absolutely. (laughs) I often think that Jesus' humanity redeems my own humanity. Mm. You know, if I think of of the fact that, uh, you know, I have to eat and I pass gas and sometimes I have BO and you know what that's okay because Jesus had the same stuff and in the same way sometimes I have emotions uh, that I'm not happy with but those things are okay because Jesus felt those things too and sometimes thoughts come into my mind and temptations come to me that I'm not happy with it, that I know aren't righteous things to be thinking about, but it's okay because Jesus had to deal with those things too. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of transition there and talk about those temptations that, that Jesus faced. Someone would read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God, God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it says, Jesus was tempted in every way we are. And I'm wondering about that question lately. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was tempted in general? such as when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil? Or does it mean that Jesus was tempted to do the specific things that I'm tempted to do? Was Jesus tempted to sin sexually, for example? Was he tempted to abuse alcohol? Was 
he tended to be sarcastic toward other people or to commit violence. Uh, as a little boy, was he tempted to disobey his parents? Was he tempted to steal? Was he tempted to eat too much? Etc. Etc. Well, I think I kind of uh, alluded to this a little bit uh, earlier when I was saying I don't know that it can be every single way. For instance, I don't think that he personally, as a human being, could relate to a lot of issues that only females deal with. You know, what would it be like to be in an unplanned pregnancy? Um, You know, he couldn't have really been tempted to have an abortion, for instance. Um, My thought is, I I don't want to get to the point of saying it's just general, because, oh, well, yeah, he was tempted in every way. But in a way, I think it is that way, because what is the main temptation that each one of us, that every human being has to deal with is, is it my way or is it God's way? And the bottom line is, I believe that he was tempted in many, many, many ways, not just those three temptations in the wilderness and that one time at Gethsemane, but I think he was probably tempted in many, many, many ways to do the things that would have been the humanly more beneficial thing, but that humanly beneficial thing was not what God the Father wanted, so he submitted his will to the will of God the Father. Well, it's part of his humanity. We're human. He was human. And the scripture said he was tempted in every way. And so just, you know, not everybody's tempted with the same things, kind of like what you were saying, um, or in the same ways. Um, and we can certainly put ourselves in ways of temptation um, by where we go, what we're doing with our mind, what you know, in those kind of ways. Uh, but he certainly, as a human, he certainly was tempted it's in many cl- ways clear that in the scripture Satan tried to tempt him in the same manner he would have attempted to uh, tempt a, a, a normal human being and I've often wrestled a little bit with this because I don't believe that Jesus had a sinful nature like I do but uh, Satan was still trying to use power and material things uh, to tempt him to, to get Satan's way but um, Maybe we need another church council on how much Jesus could have been tempted. I'll, I'll recommend that to the, uh, the powers that be. But as we close, I want to ask, well, how does Jesus, having been human, help us now? Just what I've said. I know that he was tempted. I know that um, he overcame temptation. And I know that he forgives me when I do fall, but I also know that by His grace, I don't have to fall if I just would follow Him. And I was thinking, too, that uh, how Jesus helps us now, I think it's made very clear in the Scripture that uh, after having done what He did for us all, that He's pleading our case now. So how does He help me now as mediator, as advocate, as intercessor? He's pleading our case and uh, he's listening when we ask for forgiveness. And because he did what he did, I am forgiven, and I have a fresh start. Amen. I love the fact that he's our advocate. That means that he is on our side. He is arguing for us, if you want to use the word arguing, but he's taking our side of things. And Steve, I think you've done a fantastic job today of, of 
basically scratching the surface of this. I mean, it's one of those things that it took all these councils to uh, deal with over all these centuries and even millennia. And um, taking uh, half an hour to do something like this is great. So it's about time for us to be signing off for today's episode. So Steve Wilson, it's, uh, as I say, been a great job. Mick Wells has been with us. Vicki Cundiff. This is Pete Vecchi. And it's been our pleasure to be with you today on Reconciling Grace. We hope you'll join us again next time, 8.30 in the morning, Saturdays and Sundays, for Reconciling Grace. This has been Reconciling Grace. Join us again next time as our panel discusses biblical truths centered around the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ.